So before I jump into the sermon, I just wanted to give y'all something real quick. This is how I'm hurting. <clears throat> Put me on the spot to rap. Crazy. <laughs> I cannot believe I'm back here again two months later. This is... This is amazing to me. One, because I love this church. I love being able to, I was content coming here this morning, sitting in the back and just chilling. I love to worship with you all and be here. I love this city and I love little dizzies. So, so we are here for the final four. Mike and I, we had a good time last night watching the games, but I was looking forward to this morning to being with you all. And then tomorrow night we'll be at the championship game and we fly back home Wednesday. So it's different for me because I'm going to no schools this week. No schools. I'm used to getting up like, oh, we got to get up. 7 o'clock, Jeff will be here. We got four schools we're going to. And I got to get in Kirk Kennedy mode. And I preach. And I'm tired. And we got three more schools to hit. Well, this time, I get to chill. <laughs> I get to relax. I am doing some writing here, so it's not all chilling. I got a book deadline due May 4th. So I'm actually writing trying to be a distinguished gentleman, all right, folks. Instead of Kurt Allen, I am Curtis Allen. <laughs> Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And while you do that, I, I don't know why. I'll tell you this story as you're opening there, and I don't know why this happens to me as consistently as it does. Normally, on a Sunday, when I am preaching, I have the strangest thoughts. Now, you would think that as you're going into the church, it's a spiritual thing. You're going into the house of God. You're trusting the Spirit of God to speak to you. You've prepared. You've thought a lot about what you have to say. And at any given point, within a few miles of getting to this church, I started thinking about Sesame Street. <laughs> now, before I say what I'm going to say, let me make sure you understand, I have three small kids, all right? So I'm not just sitting there watching Sesame Street. I have three small kids, and they watch Sesame Street, and this one morning, there was this shocking episode, and it was, it opened up with, you know, the Sesame Street, sunny day. You know, this is, it's a great place. If you know anything about Sesame Street, all problems are solved by numbers, letters, and puppets. It's a beautiful place. And so I was watching this, and everyone is so kind and, and, and selfless. And at the beginning of this episode, the, one of the main characters gets up, and she's walking down Sesame Street, and she says hello to another popular character, and he grabs this item off the table, and he goes, mine. And so she looks at the camera like, okay, that's strange. So she walks down the street, and then she says hello to someone else, and he says, mine. And she's confused, obviously. And then she walks a little further, and all these people are grabbing things, saying, mine, 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 mine. And I'm thinking the whole time, why am I thinking about this driving to church? And then I thought, all right, Lord, I just need to be focused. Let me get focused. And then all of a sudden, I thought of Finding Nemo. I was getting focused, and I, re I, don't, I, I remember seeing Nemo and this just flapping out of the water, and then it was like a seagull saw it and went, 
mine. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like a million of them showed up, all for a fish this big. And they all said, mine, 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 mine. And they was going back and forth, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I thinking this? I'm going to preach a sermon. I'm supposed to be spiritually minded. I can get fired for this. And I'm thinking about Sesame Street. I'm imagining finding Nemo, and I'm thinking, Lord, am I going to get eaten by the church? Is this, is this, you know, God speaks through dreams and visions sometimes, and don't think he can't do it to you. So I'm thinking, well, I definitely ain't fish for a while until I know what's going on. And I'm thinking, why am I thinking about some disease called myonitis? That's what they call it, myonitis on Sesame Street. What in the world does that have to do with me preaching? And then it made sense to me. It made sense. I don't know what it meant. <laughs> it made sense to me that, you know, often when we hear God's word taught, and that's probably almost any message, unless, it's, unless you know it's going to be one of those God loves you no matter what messages, almost any message we hear from God's word, if we're honest, is a challenge. God's word has wonderful promises, no question. We sang powerfully at the promises and truths of God's word, but if we are honest, there is a lot of God's word that is challenging. It is hard to hear. And when you come to church on a Sunday and you hear a message, if it begins to challenge you, the temptation is to think yours. The temptation is to think of all the people that you hope are listening to this sermon. You hear a message and, and, and the preacher makes a good point and you think, man, I hope my wife is listening. <laughs> or you think, man, I hope my, my husband is really listening. This is a good point. And you write it down and underline it three times. <laughs> the temptation when you hear God's word is to think yours. But what we are supposed to do when we hear God's word is to think mine. Mine, 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 mine. This and every message you hear is for you, to you, from God. And your response should be mine. Mine, mine. So this morning, as we go through 2 Peter 1 through 11, this is the only hope I have this morning, is that everyone who is listening has a degree of mind-itis. Because it is in that that we take God's word, apply it to ourselves, and we benefit others rather than thinking yours. Let's say mine. Amen? Amen? Let's read 2 Peter, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 11, and I quote, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning I am, I am aware of my responsibility given to you, given to me from you through the pastors of this church to speak to your sons and daughters this morning. And I began with a story that hoping that we have mind-itis. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think mind because when you look at the people in this room, you say the same thing mine. And so, Lord, since we are yours, may we take from you your word as best as I can explain it accurately. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity and pray that you would help me with this responsibility and that many, if not all of us, would leave encouraged. Some, if not many of us, would leave convicted, but all of us would be convinced of your mercy and your grace and the expectations that come from knowing your mercy and your grace. So help me, Lord. And I pray that if I say anything that's wrong this morning, that you would have each of them forget. But if I say anything that's true, that you would make them remember and live by that truth. In your name we pray. Amen. If you are interested in like a main thought a main theme. Here's the main theme of these 11 verses is this. God's power in us produces godly qualities from us. God's power in us produces godly qualities from us. And we'll discover this in three ways in particular. In the first four verses, we will see God's power received. Later on, we'll see God's power applied and then we'll end with God's power stewarded. In the first four verses, Peter 
at the beginning of this letter, you may not have caught this because I'd read this letter a lot of times and I never saw what Peter was saying in his introduction. For me, when I read the Bible often, especially at the beginning of a letter, introductions are just things that you have to say to get to the good stuff, you know? It's like, I, Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I just want to see what's he telling us to do. But there's an important introduction that, that Peter gives that is significant to understanding the rest of what he says. In verse 1, after he introduces himself, he immediately refers to the people that he's talking to by saying this about them. He says that they have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a significant statement. Significant. When he says ours, he is referring to the apostles. These are the heavyweights of the faith. They were ordained. They were chosen by Christ themselves. They do miracles that only Christ could do. These men were everything that everyone wished they would who believed in Jesus. These people were overwhelmed with respect for these apostles, Peter probably in particular. And he's writing a letter to people, as you know by going through 1 Peter, who are experiencing suffering. These people are experiencing suffering for believing in Jesus. They've been beaten. They've had to scatter from their homes. They've been ridiculed, exiled. And the last thing that any of these people would believe is that they have a faith of equal standing to that of the apostles. It's the last thing you think about when you're suffering is that the faith that you have is equivalent to someone really godly who's not suffering. He begins this letter acknowledging that they have a faith of equal standing so that the people who are suffering that would get this would realize in Jesus Christ, we are all the same. You see, Peter and them don't have some special ability to obey God. They don't have a special measure of faith, and neither do any of us in this room, pastor or not. We all have an equal standing because of faith in Jesus Christ. This is significant because it levels the playing field. We are all responsible to obey God because he's given all of us an equal standing and faith in him through his son's death on the cross. You may not jump for joy like Peter did just now when he sang again, but you have an equal standing in Christ just as he does. That is significant because what Peter is going to tell them and us in verses 3 through 11 will only make sense if we recognize that he's not talking to a few of us who have figured out the secret to godliness. He's talking to all of us because the people, the original recipient of this letter, 
have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles and those in this room who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ have also obtained an equal faith with the apostles because you believe in Jesus. That's significant. It's significant. That is the introduction to a wonderful reality that he's going to introduce. And the truth, which is in fact true for all of us, has a greater purpose in this letter, knowing that we're of equal standing with those, all people who believe in Jesus Christ, including those who we respect in Scripture and in present contemporary life. We all are confronted with verses 3 and 4, and it is the basis of the truth that is in verse 1 that makes 3 and 4 the foundation for how we are to think about that equal standing and faith that we have with Jesus. And he says this in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. This divine power that that Peter's talking about. He's, he's talking about the righteousness of God. We sing about that. We believe that, and you all theologically know this. It is the divine power of God is in fact God in the form of the Holy Spirit. You see, we live in a society where people outsource. You know, you call a 1-800 number, and you might, somebody might answer in India, and you realize that they've outsourced your concern. Let someone else handle it. God does not outsource. He doesn't outsource. God doesn't save people and then say, there you go. Let's see how you do. No. God guarantees, he guarantees his work on the cross by giving people who believe in that work on the cross his own self in the form of his spirit. And it is that righteousness It is that righteousness, that divine power that God says he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It means if you believe in Jesus Christ, even though you don't feel like you have the spirit within you, God guarantees that you have the spirit within you because the spirit is the only reason why you have the desire and the ability to obey God. That's the only reason why. You know, sometimes I struggle with believing a verse like this because let's just be honest, when you are just living day to day, you don't feel like the Spirit is helping you change, right? What does that feel like? You don't feel like, it feels like you have to force yourself not to give in to the temptation that you are facing and you're wondering, where's the Spirit? This should be easy. And then you realize, man, this isn't easy, and you get deceived into thinking that the fact that you don't feel the Spirit, oh, that somehow something's wrong with you. That is not the case. That is not the case. He's granted to you all things by His Spirit. The very fact that you have a desire to obey God is proof that the Spirit of God is in you. Because without that, you wouldn't care and I wouldn't care. 
This divine power is referring to God himself. God makes sure that everything that we need, we have to obey him. And it is the reason why no one will stand before God and be able to give any excuse. You will not be able to say, Lord, I, you know, I tried to repent, but I was just so busy. My life was, I really needed to finish school. And I had a lot of, I needed a job and I was struggling and I, I just had, and, and the Lord is not going to say, I, yeah, you're right. I gave you a tough life. I would be shocked if any of us hear that from the Lord. He will bring you back to, if nothing else, this verse and say, did you believe this? Did you believe this? God has made it possible for holiness to be attainable by his power to those whom receive it. So if you're like me, here's the question I'm asking. Why then, why do I live such a defeated life so often? If this is true, why do I live such a defeated life? Why do I have habits and patterns that seem like they don't go away? They, they, they coming back like they're avenging their brother's death. You got habits and patterns that just, they just, they like, they, they trick you. You hear a message, you go to a conference, and you just feel like, oh, this is so good. And then it's like that habit is waiting for you to get out of service. I kid you not, am I right? It's like, man, you feel good. You, have, you worship the Lord. You feel like, man, you, in char- you feel charged up, ready to repent. And that habit is like, hey, psst, he's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's feeling good. He's coming. You go that way, I'm going this way. <laughs> Sunday, you feel great. All of a sudden, Tuesday morning, bam, you get hit on this side. Somebody says something to you you don't like, and you snap back, and you think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Then, bam, it comes that way. You heard somebody was talking behind your back, and you think, man, man, I'll smack this skin off of their face. (laughs) Now, I know some of y'all are dignified. Y'all don't talk like that. But for those of us that know what I'm saying, it just, and you just think, okay, Lord, I just heard a message that I agree with, and I spent an hour with you this morning, and I feel like I'm living a defeated life. Why is that so if this is true? I think here's why. I think because many of us process the Spirit's work the wrong way. I, for years, processed the Spirit's work primarily through how I feel, not through what I think. You process the Spirit's work through how you feel, and you forget that the overwhelming majority in the New Testament, the passages, they do not tell you to change how you feel. Do you know that? You will not find very many, if any, passages that tell you that your growth in the Lord is connected to your emotions. You know what you'll find, though? You'll find about 15 or so verses that say, renew your mind. Set your mind on things above. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. In Genesis 3, when sin was brought into the world, we get no indication that it was an emotional decision. But in Genesis 3, 6, look at it when you get a chance. What does Eve do after she gets a temptation? She uses her mind and she reasons. And the verse brings us into her thoughts. 
It shows her looking at the fruit, and then she says, well, it is pleasing to the eye. It does make one wise for knowledge. She's thinking. Her mind made it possible for how she felt to bite that fruit. So what God gives us, the power that God gives us, is not necessarily an emotional issue. What God says even here is that it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God wants us to do the battle here. He doesn't just give us everything we need and leaves it up to us to figure it out. And often, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, all of us know instinctively, even if you don't phrase it this way, that a lot of the battle of the Christian life is fighting how I feel with how I think. People say, what's the secret? There's no, the secret is there's no secret. You will have, if you are a Christian, you will have to fight how you feel with what you think. And then you decide how to act. You will have to respond beyond how you feel more times than not to make progress in your faith as a believer. If you think, man, I still feel angry, my first question is, well, what did you do? Well, I asked the Lord to, how did you respond? Well, I prayed and asked the Lord to help me, and I, I said, thank you for saying what you said, and let me think about it. How'd you feel? Well, I still felt angry. What did you do? I didn't do that way. You honored the Lord. Well done. You responded beyond how you felt. That is the battle. And this is why God gives us great and precious promises. He doesn't give us great and precious emotions, and emotions come with knowledge, but they are not the foundation for knowledge. You can't sing with your hands up unless you mentally have already sold to the fact that this is true. I believe it and my sins are forgiven. Here's the proof of that. How many times have you come to church, you're the same person, and you just don't raise your hands? You don't sing as much. What's changed? Not the great and precious promises. How you feel has changed. You feel like a hypocrite because you got into a conflict with your kids on the way here. You yelled at your wife. You gave into pornography the night before. You feel different. So you have to battle that with the great and precious promises of Jesus Christ that he says are yours through the knowledge of believing in his son. That is the Christian life. And sometimes I love it, and sometimes I hate it. Because it's unnatural. It's unnatural, right? It's unnatural for me to think, to try to be humble. It's unnatural for me to not say something to you if you say something to me in a tone of voice. It's unnatural for me not to yank my kids up and be like, do what I say after I've asked him 12 times to do it. It's unnatural to be like, son, 
obey Poppy. I don't know about you, man, I take deep breaths. And in those breaths, that's just when I remind myself of truth. My, I, something happens and I'm like, son, it's just a battle and we all face it. If you know people that are more mature than you, it's not because they have a different spirit within them than you. You have equal standing. All they've done is fight how they feel with what they think more than you have. And they've developed habits and they've grown to be mature. This knowledge that is being talked about in verse 3 is not a general knowledge of God. There are people in this room that are probably not saved, may not be saved, and you have a general knowledge of God. But the knowledge that he's referring to is an intimate saving knowledge. This, this passage assumes relationship. It doesn't assume agreement. It assumes relationship. I know a lot of people that agree that Jesus is the Lord, but they have no relationship with him. None. The passage assumes relationship. It is the knowledge of God that leads and that extends to knowing that you were called by his own glory and excellence because you have within you, you have within you all that you need for life and godliness. So God is calling us to be a part of his glory. And that just means your life glorifies the Lord because you've received power from him to do so. The truth of this gets better and it even gets more clarifying. In verse 4, this is what he says, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is significant. Because this is, this is why we're fortunate. We don't believe in something based upon this big wall of hieroglyphics. We don't have a faith that was passed down to us just from generations to generation, and then we just by, by blind faith just believe that it's true, but we have documented, preserved, great and precious promises that are the Word of God. God made sure that all of us who would believe in Him after Jesus and the apostles died, that we would have some confidence to trust that what we believe to be true is true. Now, we live in a society where a lot of people will attack the Bible, right? We live in a society where a lot of people attack the Bible, and you will hear people say, the Bible's not the Word of God, it was written by men. The Bible has a lot of errors in it, and all these different things. And, and you know what? At the end of the day, if everything that all the people who opposed the Bible were true, then we would no longer exist. If it were really true that the Bible wasn't the word of God and that Jesus really didn't die on the cross but went to France and married Mary and had a few kids that became kings of France or whatever that stuff is, if all of that were true, it would prove to be the greatest hoax in the history of the world and we would be fools to still believe it. The fact that some 2,000 years later, no one can fundamentally prove that these great and precious promises are untrue is proof that they are. I had a guy say to me one time, I tell you what, man, prove to me that God exists. 
I said, I tell you what, I'll prove that God exists when you prove he doesn't. That was in the conversation. He shook my hand. I shook his hand. We went our own way. I'm not proving God exists because you can't prove he doesn't. We have great and precious promises that are significant to God. Now, remember, this is his word. So this is his, his, his definition. This is how he sees his word as great and precious promises. And through believing them, we become partakers of the divine nature. We, we begin to live differently. We begin to live differently. We begin to think differently. We begin to act differently because we're becoming partakers of the divine nature. That's what's happening to you as you resist giving in to certain temptations. That's what happens to you when you finally confess a pattern of sin that you've been deceiving people in. You're becoming a partaker of the divine nature because these great and precious promises through God's spirit starting to have an effect on you. We have a real union with Christ that allows us to be partakers of his suffering and the glory that's going to be revealed to us when he returns and when we see him. And it's through faith in these great and precious promises that we escape the corruption that is in the world. And I hope you know that. Most of your faith is connected to this word. None of us in here were alive when Jesus was, right? If you were, see me afterwards. Let me be your manager. We can make a lot of money. None of us were alive. So we have to have faith. Here's what our faith is in. This word, church history, and then our own lives and the lives of people around us. That's how we have confidence that this is true. This word, church history, people who have been willing to die for this, and what you do think and what you see others do and think. God sees his promises as very great and precious. Here's a question. Do you see them that way? Do you see them as great and precious as God does? Do you see them as being partakers of the divine nature? It's helping you. This word helps you become more like Jesus. Or is it somehow your effort in just fighting in and of itself? Do you see them as great and precious promises? Let's take a test. Here's a test. Here's how you know. The best way to know if you believe that the, if you believe in the word of God and the promises that come from God, here's the best way you can tell. It's not the only way, it's the best way. Here's how you can tell. When you sin, what do you do afterwards? When you fall again in a new area or a familiar area, what do you do? Does Romans 8.1 there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that comfort you? When you fall in sin, do you feel like you have to withdraw from God? Do you now feel like a hypocrite to raise your hands up on Sunday morning? Do you feel like you can't read your Bible or draw near? You can't even pray. You don't even feel comfortable praying because you've given in to some sin. 
You don't want to go to covenant group, and if you do, you hope people don't ask you because you just don't want to say anything. If that's how you feel after you sin, if you cannot approach God, then it proves that you do not believe that these promises are great and precious. What it proves is how you feel is more real to you than what God's word says. That's what it proves. If you cannot pray because you've lied again, you've given into lust again, then you fundamentally do not believe what God says, that he forgives your sin and washes it clean. You fundamentally do not believe that you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because of this flesh, but because of his flesh. If you can't pray after you sin, then you do not believe in the precious and great promises of God as you thought. Because it is what he says in his word. He says in, in 1 John 1, 9, if anyone confesses sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. What he did not say was that you will feel forgiven. And what he did not say is that there won't be consequences for what you confess. But what he said was, from my perspective, being God, you are forgiven. We are forgiven. You know why? Because when God looks at this church, you know what he sees? Mine. God has mine-itis towards the people who believe in his son. God's power applied. The second point in verses 5 through 8, knowledge, what we believe when we have that knowledge about God and those great and precious promises, they promote action. They promote action. They don't always change emotion, but they promote action. Now, they do change emotion. I don't want to dog emotion. There is some emotion involved, but when emotion becomes authority, we have a problem. Emotions aren't authority. Let me give you a perfect example. I woke up this morning and I just felt wonderfully thin. <laughs> I did. Felt good. Felt like I could run a 10K. So then when Peter got up and started jumping, I tried to imitate him. I did it once and said, no, chill out, sit down. <laughs> I got a two-inch verti, two-inch vertical. Felt wonderfully thin this morning. And you know what? Your laughter proves that not only are my emotions not authority, they're not even accurate. <laughs> you do the same thing, though. You do the same thing. You do the same thing when you sin and you don't feel God's love. You don't feel like a Christian. What in the world does that mean? There are phrases that we say that I have no idea what they mean. Someone said to me, man, I don't feel like a Christian. I was like, when, when have you ever? I've never felt like a Christian. I don't even know what it feels like. What does a pastor feel like? I have no idea what that feels like. I know what a lower back pain feels like. I know what an ingrown toenail feels like. I had an ingrown toenail so vicious, people thought I was living back in the hood because I was walking like this. I have no idea what being a Christian feels like. And then we use these wonderful, colorful phrases and say, look to the cross. What in the world does that mean? What do these phrases mean? 
Don't tell me to trust God. That's not helpful. What do I need to say, think, and do in the moment that I'm struggling to trust God? That's what we need. And that comes from these great and precious promises. It tells us and other people remind us. We have an equal faith with the apostles, with the people that you respect for their godliness. You have an equal faith because of Jesus Christ. And so that knowledge affects and promotes action. In verses 5 through 8 is very clear. 5 through 7 is very clear. God expects after you believe in the great and precious promises that he's given us and that we have within us the ability to obey him because his spirit gives us both a desire and the ability to obey God, God expects us to actually do it. And in verses 5 through 7, he lists a number of qualities. For time's sake, I'm not going to go through these qualities, but let me ask you to do one thing. One thing from these three verses. Five, six, and seven. Well, I see two things. Sit down and go through each of these and just evaluate how am I doing with this? Just ask yourself, how am I doing with faith? How am I doing with virtue? Am I, try, am I really doing things in a way that pleases the Lord? How am I doing with knowledge? Am I not even reading anymore? Am I just kind of finally making excuses? How am I doing with self control? What about perseverance? I feel like giving up. Ask yourself these questions and then, and then ask someone else to answer these questions about you. Someone who knows you, not someone who can't answer these with authority. Ask someone who knows you, how do you think I'm doing with godly affection? How do you think I'm doing with brotherly love? And ask not to be defensive. Ask so that you can be informed on how you are doing. These qualities, these qualities begin with the most essential of all qualities is faith and virtue. That's why he says, for this very reason, it's the reality that you have received power from God and now you must apply that power. And this list is self-explanatory. The order of these qualities is not important. It's the presence of them that is important. Before you is a self-evaluation list from God. And you will see that what glorifies God is pursuing these qualities. What's noticeably absent from this list is serving in the church. Leadership. Being really emotional. Now, those are good things. Those are good things. But those qualities, if they don't flow from those qualities, they might not necessarily be good things. We can focus so much on serving in the church or whatever we do, that we can totally miss the fact that the way we serve is more noticeable to people than that we serve. Are you a people have to walk on eggshells around you person? If you are, it is a possibility that even though you serve in the church and are present in the church and you give to the church, that you need to grow in brotherly affection towards the church. 
And God would care much more about that than your position in the church. The functions of what we do are not in this list. But there are actions and attitudes that are. Now, I want to be clear. Now, Scripture says that growth in these qualities is what God expects as a result of us believing in the great and precious promises that God has given us. We, we have to learn to see that faith is, is a muscle, okay? Faith is like a muscle, and obedience is like it's exercise. We all get a measure of faith given to us when we get saved, but we have to exercise that muscle, and that's what obedience is. For many of us, if you're like me, I just, I just want it to be like a holy zap. You know, you just want to, I mean, I know people, there was a time, man, where I thought people just got zapped, and that's how you just got godly. I kid you not, I go, I mean, I was at a church, man, and folks would be just like walking on cloud 12, you know, just love Jesus. And I would be like, man, I'm struggling not to get high. And people would just be, and you would get this impression that they just, in a moment's instance, just changed. And they went from angry people to, I can't stand my job and I want to quit. And everything about this job, I love you. I love, I love you. I love this job. And whatever you say, I will do. And please, cut me off. I what happened to you? Jesus. That's not the Lord. That's drugs, man. Let's just keep it 100. But I used to think it was like that. You know, it was like a zap, and you just get it, and all of a sudden, you got the secret, and you just walk out the rest of your life, always thanking people for correcting you. Thank you for your observation. Would you pray for me, brother? And I would hear something and be like, oh, thank you. I, mean, I used to think it was a holy zap. There is no such thing. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Listen, growing in the Lord is hard work. It's, it's hard work. It's head versus heart. The issue, the battlefield is the mind. That's it. You're going to feel a certain way, and then you got to think, what does God think about how I feel? And then you have options. I'm either going to give in or I'm going to fight. And sometimes it doesn't change how you feel because God wants you to fight because he's giving you what you need to do so. You ever prayed, God, help me love this person? Lord, I just pray I really struggle. Help me love them. And then they do something even worse. Just make you hate them. And you're thinking, man, Lord, I'm praying that you help me love them. And I guarantee you, the Lord says, I am doing that. <laughs> but you know what we're praying? We're praying for a holy zap. Lord, help me love him. I, I think you can have anything you want. It's a, that's what we're praying for. But God says, okay, I'm going to grant you your request. But I'm not going to zap you to do it. I'm going to make you have to fight how you feel with the great and precious promises that I gave you to meditate on. And you're going to have to act. The, 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 the qualities that are listed in 5-7 are very much actions, if not emotions. You're going to have to act beyond how you feel, and I will work on your emotions. 
The Lord knows that we are dust. He remembers how we are made. There's, a, there's something that Christ understood when he became one of us. That's why Hebrews 4 says we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus knows it is hard to love this person. Man, does he know that. Because he was tempted in the same way. This is a battle with what I think versus how I feel. And the more I respond beyond how I feel, the more I grow in the qualities listed in five through seven. That is your battle. That is your cross. Deny yourself and follow Jesus. It is hard work. Hard work. And God knows that. But he gives a warning. Look what he says in verse 8. 8 through 11, God gives a warning for not doing that. And it says, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people that are Christians that may be in this room that are ineffective and are unfruitful. And I'm not just talking about teens. We tend to think teenagers are the ones who are ineffective and unfruitful because you're not sure where they really stand. All of us, all of us, all of us are patterns and habits away from being ineffective or unfruitful. If you spend your time doubting God, critiquing others, and evaluating other people's lack of qualities, all the while ignoring that you lack these qualities, you become ineffective or unfruitful for the kingdom. You become ineffective or unfruitful. This is a process. Christians should be making progress in the process. It is our calling from God. Our being like Jesus is not a speed. It's a process. You guys know the, the, the story of the tortoise and the hare? You know the story where this, this, this arrogant rabbit agrees to race this, this turtle. And this rabbit is lightning fast. And so the race starts, pew, the rabbit is gone. And he's just, he's taking naps eating carrots, dipping them in chocolate. I mean, he's having fondue. And the turtle is just plodding along and plodding along. And then finally, the rabbit had slept so long that he woke up and saw that the turtle was near the end, and he took off running. But as soon as he got there, the turtle had already crossed and won the race. And the rabbit was upset. Well, you know what? Spiritually, I'm a turtle. I look at some people and I think they're rabbits. I am a turtle. Turtles make progress. Turtles win races. I am a turtle. But I am heading towards the finish line. I would imagine that many of you feel like turtles when you evaluate areas of your life. Well, you are in good company, but we win races and we make progress even 
if we do it slowly. I love football. I love football. You are going to be tackled by your sin. But Christians get tackled falling forward. Second and nine is much better than second and 17. We make progress. Godly power in us produces godly qualities from us. So we make every effort to fight. And lastly, we steward this because God says, I mean, verses 9, through, nine and 10 are kind of, they're like actually shocking. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. God doesn't really play, does he? He's really direct. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is an amazing reality. Because what God is saying is, look, if you're not growing in the Lord, the fundamental problem is that you've forgotten that your former sins were cleansed. There is a connection between believing that our sins are forgiven to giving us the faith to continue on. You know, when I play basketball, some of you don't think I play basketball because I'm big now, but don't worry about that. I was quick on my feet. I was quick. Play ball. <laughs> play ball. Play semi-pro. And I had a two coaches. One coach, the head coach was mean dude. I mean, if you made one mistake, you was getting yanked out the game. One mistake. But the assistant coach was cool. And so when you would play for the head coach, you come down, run off, and you forgot, you, you pass it the wrong way and cut the other way, he'd pull you out. So you always had this fear of not wanting to mess up, and you would end up messing up. But I had this assistant coach that was cool, and he was like, look, man, calm down. You all right. I ain't going to pull you out. Get comfortable. Go out there. Do what you got to do. And whenever he was the head coach, oh, man, I had my best games. Because I was confident that this guy wasn't just going to blast me. I was confident. He was a good dude. And, and, and that, I, I wasn't, there wasn't a fear of messing up. Play better. Believing that your sins are forgiven is like that assistant coach. It gives you confidence to continue on. You know why? Because the minute you think God is that head coach and says, if you sin, I'm causing you to have a car accident. <laughs> now, we laugh, but let's be honest. Sometimes we think grace is malicious. God just does stuff because he can. And if we're honest, we think like that. You start, you suffer, you lose your job or something, something happens. You don't think like, oh, man, God's got my back. You think like, what in the world are you doing, Lord? If you forget that your sins are forgiven, you will think God is that head coach that's yelling at you for messing up. But your sins being forgiven by God is that foundation for having confidence to get up, take up your mat, and walk. And that's all we got. If you are not growing in the Lord, my first question for you would be, what do you think about your sin being forgiven? Do you still believe that fundamental truth? Because if that's no longer true to you, then neither is anything else. And that's what God is saying here. And then in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Let me tell you why, lastly, why this is a big problem. Here's why this is a big problem. Legalism. Legalism. 
Legalism is earning your salvation, your justification before the Lord. But here's the problem with legalism. We have actually made legalism worse than what it was. In the church, people who teach about legalism so much have made it seem like that any effort and any hard work is legalism. We've, we've actually turned legalism into a sanctification issue. Legalism is a justification issue. It's I do this to earn my righteousness before God. We've made it a sanctification issue. So then you use terms like, well, I don't want to go to that movie because oh, you're being legalistic. I don't listen to that music. You're being legalistic. Legalism is a motive issue. Here's proof. In Galatians, what was the big deal in Galatians? Circumcision, right? Paul was going after people, the Judaizers, for circumcision, for making people be circumcised to believe in Jesus. But in Acts 15, which you all will see when you go through Acts in a couple months, you will see that Paul circumcised Timothy. So now why would he have a problem with circumcision and then circumcise Timothy? Because legalism wasn't the action of circumcision. It was the motive behind the action that made it legalism. It was that they thought by doing this, it earned their justification before God. Circumcision in and of itself wasn't the problem. It was what they thought it meant. You see, Paul knew that it's not a sanctification issue. Sanctification are actions of obedience. But we have been so enamored with legalism that we got confused as if there's no work in the gospel. That is the biggest lie out today. There is a moral code to believing in Jesus that we have to do. It is not legalistic. It is not legalism to not do certain things. You might just be making your calling and election sure. Do not mistake hard gospel work for legalism. Unless you're doing it thinking, hey, by doing this, I earned my justification before God, which I know most of you don't think because I know you're pastors. And I know that they teach you truth. Most of you don't think I'm earning my justification before God. Most of you think I want to honor the Lord. Well done. The gospel, don't, don't fall into that Grace is as if like it's a holy zap. It's just easy. You just apply grace to that situation. Man, what in the world are you talking about? I am struggling today. I feel it. It's hard work. And that hard work doesn't earn salvation. It learns salvation. You don't work hard to earn your justification. You work hard because you're justified doesn't prove salvation. It doesn't promote. It, it proves you're saved. That's what it does. Don't be fooled. Make your calling and election sure. You work hard. We work hard because God has given us his great and precious promises. If we do not, it could be that we have forgotten the foundation of why we are supposed to be obedient anyway. And it's that your sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And if you are brave enough to be steadfast as listed in the qualities, God, God is God enough to grant you in verse 11, which is beautiful, entrance 
into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake of all this hard work that earns nothing, but that learns everything. God, God's power in us produces godly qualities from us, and it will be hard to do so. But God has given you what you need in you, and he's given you what you need around you to help you so that you get to this place of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We end up looking at the Lord where we no longer need faith. I can't wait for the day to say I have no faith because I don't need it because I can see him because I'm with him. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray specifically for those who are hearing this message and are affected by the truth of it, that you are doing work in their spirit to help them process this and to grow. I pray that you would help them to to start and just just start in a place. I pray that they would truly look at verses 5 through 7 and just do an evaluation of self not to beat themselves down, but just to make their calling and election sure. I pray that that they would ask someone else to give them their evaluation, not to be beaten down, not to be overwhelmed with our sin, but just so that we can continue to honor you with our lives. You granted us great and precious promises. And through that word, we are becoming more like you. We're becoming a part of the divine nature. So we're making every effort. Lord, help us to make every effort to not be nearsighted and blind to the fact that our sins are forgiven. And that gives us freedom to fall and get back up. Lord, make that connection in our souls. Help us to continue to trust you in all that we do. As hard as it is, you know more than us how hard it is to trust you. Lord, let us not be deceived by the foolishness of false legalism, but help us to pursue you, to trust these promises, to act opposite of how we often feel because of what your word is telling us to do, even if we don't feel like it. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Remind us when we hear the word preached, the Holy Spirit is at work using human vessels with human language, traveling through human words into human ears to find His way into our hearts and our souls. But that's just one means of the Holy Spirit's operation, right? So, right now, the Holy Spirit has access to your heart in a unique way. So I want you to kind of disengage to some degree from the voices of humanity here and I want you to listen carefully for the Spirit and what God's trying to communicate to you this morning. So let me ask us to stand up and...
posture ourselves to receive something. I believe the Lord had wanted to minister to some folks specifically, although I think there isn't a person here this morning who the Holy Spirit hasn't found through that word. But I believe there were some here this morning that specifically God had a word for. So let's go before God in prayer and just open our lives uniquely to the Spirit who is here with us. Lord, thank you for the word implanted that is able to transform our souls. That's what these verses say again to us. So you are here, present, in your word, by the Spirit, to affect our lives. And so, Lord, we, we want to receive from you now. Lord, we want to be the audience that you intended to receive something from you this morning. Now, I want you just to, to stay listening to God for a moment because I, I believe God has orchestrated a moment here. He has orchestrated a moment. And I'm going to have to quote several people in this one service to make sure you have listened and heard the Holy Spirit. Eric began the service with an admonition of us having reality to the words that we were singing. There's a danger right now that there's going to be a lack of reality in some lives. That's why God says stuff, to get our attention in these categories. And then there was a word that was given, and there was an image that was portrayed about an alleyway that was filled with garbage. And things had just been accumulating, and junk was there until the Lord stepped in, and there was this cleansing moment that took place. And then about two songs later, because I almost came up at that moment beginning to sense what God wanted to do for some folks. And a couple of songs later, we were led into, oh, happy day. And, and I really felt a little awkward about interrupting that because there was a sufficient reality for many of us here celebrating this happy day. But I was aware in that moment that right now there's a bunch of folks here who aren't having a happy day. They're just singing a happy song. Oh, happy day. When you washed my sins away, as in all the garbage that had been collected in your alleys had been washed away and removed. And I just began to get confirmed in the sense that what God wanted to do was to make you aware of what he does with your garbage. And you lived here in Katrina. You understand what it's like not to have a garbage man come pick up your garbage. You guys remember that? You remember what your street smelled like? for weeks when there was nobody collecting garbage? You took it outside and you dumped it by the curb or you took it to a dumpster that was in your neighborhood, but you rode up and down the street and it just stunk because there was a collection of garbage. You'd, you'd shoved it out of your house, but it didn't get out of your life. And so you were reminded of the stench over and over and over again. But there's something God does when he forgives our sins that removes our sins from our lives. It doesn't make us forget that they ever happened. That's not possible. But it puts them away in a way that needs to become significant. And that's exactly what Kurt preached to us this morning. These are promises from God. You've got to believe what God does with your garbage when you put it out in the alleyway. 
you got to believe that God's doing something with it. You just, you just can't leave it there and, and let yourself be reminded of it over and over and over again. And I didn't know what Kurt was preaching this morning until I walked into the service. And when he said this verse this morning, it all just came together. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. I believe God wants a handful of folks here to do some seriously hard work because I believe there's some folks here this morning who you have allowed your life to become paralyzed because you have forgotten your sins have been forgiven the, the spirit of God has come and collected your stinky garbage and he has removed it from determining and defining your life. But you are still defining your life based on those sins. I know this morning God wants you to do some really, really hard work. I think a bunch of you sang, oh, happy day, and you're not having a happy day. And like we heard, you're going to walk out of here and it's going to be as hard and as miserable as it's ever been because that was just a song this morning. It was not truly a celebration. Right, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to pray some really hard praying. And this is why it's going to be really hard for some of you. Because if you can let your life be defined around past sins, you don't ever have to be responsible to go free from them. And some of us like to not have to be responsible for our lives. We like it enough to where we'll let the, the garbage stay in the alleyway for as long as possible because I don't ever have to overcome stuff that's still there. I don't ever have to. But you received the same faith of the same qualities the apostles themselves received. You have everything you need to go free from those things. Those things are no longer to be determining who you are. You're going to really need to let the garbage man take it away from you this morning. And be done and move on in your life as a person cleansed before God to now live your life for the glory of God as though those things had never occurred in your life to define who you are. That's some hard praying for some of us this morning. To no longer be defined by what those sins have said you are. All right, let's, let's go before God in prayer. Go ahead, bow your heads. To listen to the Holy Spirit talk to you for a moment. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that you are here to cleanse and set free. And we don't want to be a people forgetting what you have done. Lord, we want to embrace precious promises this morning. God, we want to do some hard work. Lord, there's going to be some categories here that I'm not going to mention. But Lord, I had an impression to mention a couple of categories that would be hard to move on from for some of the folks that were here. So if this is, this is a prophetic word for some of you, it's just God trying to track you down. If I don't mention you, though, it's God's already found you and he doesn't need to speak through another person to tell you about the thing that you're being defined by. I had an impression to pray for folks who have had, had abortions or you, you've been involved with somebody who did have an abortion. You may not have been the one having the abortion, but your counsel to that person resulted in an abortion. 
believe this morning God wants you to do some really hard work and believe some promises of God and be able to move on in your life. God wants to redefine your life. He doesn't want that defining who you are. He wants you to receive forgiveness. He wants you to be cleansed. He wants you to let him into the alleyway to remove all that junk that's remained. I believe there are some here who you, you have a divorce in your background that has become a defining thing about who you are and how you feel about your life. I believe God wants you to be cleansed. God wants you to own his cleansing as much as you own that that event happened in your life and, and you did some things you shouldn't have done and you took some avenues that you shouldn't have walked down and you didn't heed God's word. This morning, if you don't receive forgiveness, you're still not heeding God's word. And can I tell you, the forgiveness of the Son of God is bigger than your divorce. It's a bigger word to heed. It's a more important word to heed. I believe there are some here who, you have some unfaithfulness toward your spouse in your life. Adultery. And, and it's defining who you are. And you are, you are not moving on from it. And you are not growing. And you are not experiencing grace in your life. And God wants you to receive forgiveness. Now, I think for this individual, your forgiveness and your ability to move on is going to involve you believing that God is going to give you grace to be able to talk to your spouse about that. Because that unconfessed sin is defining your marriage as well. It's defining your relationship. This morning, God's grace is here for you. His forgiveness and cleansing is here for you. And the last category I had a sense to pray for folks was people who are here and you are being defined by wasted years. Wasted years not sure what started those years, but it's been many years of what you feel like has been a wasted life. You just have not flourished in the kingdom. You've not grown. You've been defined by habits and things that Kurt described this morning. And you live under that definition rather than living under the forgiveness of God and the promises of God to move on. God wants you to hear this morning, time to move on. Time to grab your life and move on being defined by a God who has forgiven you and now has a future for you and a hope and years of fruitfulness in your life, no longer to be determined by unfruitfulness. God wants you to receive fruitfulness in your life from this day forward. Now, Lord, I trust that these words are encouragements to those who have found themselves bound to things of the past, defined by things of the past. But, God, we... We do believe in your word transforming us. And God, we believe in a Holy Spirit who shows up in a moment like this to pry us loose from those things, to give us some breathing room, to cause faith to come, even this morning in an amazing way that would give us cause to say, I can break free. I can move on. God has purchased a future for me and a hope. Oh, Lord, this morning, all throughout this room, Lord, redefine our lives. Redefine our lives. 
Lord, sin was not to be the thing that defined us. Not once the Savior came and died in our place, shed his blood, as the verse that was quoted in the message. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Oh, Lord, this morning, let it be a morning of cleansing. God, let it be a morning where the mystery of your blood flows upon these sins of our lives and we are washed whiter than snow. Lord, let it be that we no longer see the grime, the garbage, and the filth of our own actions, but let it be that we see the whiteness and the brilliance of your actions in our lives. Lord, not just a work on a cross in a distant place, far away, somehow in heaven, there's this spotless reality. But God, bring the spotless reality right here this morning. Because it's our lives that have been cleansed from sin. It's not some place in heaven. It's our lives that have been cleansed from sin. God, this morning, cleanse us, release us, start a new day, bring a new life. Cause there to be this clinging to your promises. God, this is true and we will fight for it. We fight our feelings this morning with what we think about your word. We do that right now, God. We do some hard work right now to bring a new day into our lives. A new day. Do you believe for a new day right now? I know you're listening. But are you taking steps in your heart? You believe in tomorrow's going to be different. The season's coming to an end. You're not going to live under that cloud any longer. Do you sense it? Do you believe that? Are you fighting for faith right now to believe that? Are you fighting to be released from the things that have been defining you? I mean, right now, some of you need to fight right now. The fight needs to begin right now in this building, right here this morning. You need to be done cooperating with those lies. Right now. God, we trust you. God, you ordained this morning, Lord. Too many people writing one script for a bunch of folks in this building this morning. God, we honor you that you love people. You love us, Lord. You've put us in this place, and you went to great lengths to make sure today be the day where we begin to believe new things and be released. God, this morning is a morning for new lives to begin in this place. God, we believe that. Lord, we join with praying for those that are here that need us to bind our faith to theirs. God, we believe for you to do something new in a bunch of lives here this morning. God, bring new days into personal lives, into personal habits, into relationships and marriages and past relationships. God, bring new days this morning. So God, as we go from this place, Lord, we go fighting a new fight believing with a fresh faith that you've given us by the Spirit, the faith of the same quality of the apostles themselves. That's good stuff, God. That's plenty sufficient for each one of us here this morning. So, Lord, as we exit this building this morning, God, take us into a new place. Take many into a new place, Lord, that they haven't been for years and years. A happy day. Oh, Happy day, oh, happy day, Lord. The happy day that we're, that we're supposed to be experiencing, God. Bring the happy day 
Bring the reality of the happy day into our lives this morning, Lord. God, we're going to close with that song. Uh, Lord, it's a song of faith right now for some of us. But God, it's the reality. It's what we fight for. Lord, we're going to fight for these words to be true. And not just a song with a cool melody. God, it's truth. What a happy day when you washed our sins away. Lord, thank you. Make it a reality, not just as we sing, but God, as we go. In Jesus' name. Oh, happy day, happy day. You washed my sin away. Oh, happy day, happy day. I'll never be the same. No, Lord, forever I'm changed. The greatest day. The greatest day in history. Death is beating, you have rescued me. Sing it out, Jesus is
God, thank you that we don't have to earn salvation. God, but help us to, to fight to learn salvation in our minds. God, be with us this week as we go to battle, as we go to trusting you to battle sin in our lives with the help of the Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.